0: Here it
1: is! From deep inside your audio device of choice. In um, 1983, it was uh, December 3rd, it was a Sunday. I first opened a microphone in the basement studio of a public radio station in uh, Santa Monica, California, whose call letters have been lost in the wet sands of history, and did the first of these broadcasts. It wasn't even called the same thing it's called now. It had a different name. And uh, that's where this started. And with the exception of two shows in the early mid-90s, I've done this program every week for 35 years. No, I, I it's inconceivable. And yet, true. Uh, the two I, I didn't do because of uh, I had a a thing, a little health thing, were uh, s- sat in on by Mr. Michael McKeon and Ms. Ms. Merrill Marco, both of whom said, "Don't ever ask me to do that again." So that's why, ever since, never gone. Um, I I be- this isn't the first iteration of this this thing. I started it on um, a FM underground rock station. What does that mean? In Los Angeles. And got, from which I got fired twice. Once. I know this sounds like I'm making it up. And I'm not. I wish I did. Uh, wh- I, the first time from, I got fired from for playing a Mel Torme record. <laughs> and I never got a note from Mel. And secondly, for doing a sketch in which... Uh, one of the characters, used the word penis, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the general manager of the station um, brought me into his office, and he said these words, and I'm going to bodlerize his words, because I don't want to get fired again. He said, I could have understood if you'd said S or F, but penis! uh, Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And of course... Um, Howard Stern has made half a billion dollars saying it now. Um, but anyway, so I started doing the show again. Uh, I had said goodbye to radio, um, and it to me. And then, uh, a guy named Terry McGovern, who was a king of Pittsburgh radio. I know. Alice to Ralph. Um, and had moved to San Francisco and somehow he got in touch with me and said, you want to come up and sit in for me a couple of de- a couple times. And I did, and um, I fell in love with it again. And then uh, the manager of that uh, station, whose call letters I forget, uh, allowed me to start doing the program in Santa Monica. After I proved that my musical taste was eclectic enough, <laughs> the same musical taste that got me fired for being too eclectic. Life has patterns, you notice? So this is beginning of year 36. This is the 35th anniversary broadcast. Coming from the, I guess we call it the Celebration Studio, because I've never been here before. It's the studio they have in uh, London, in where I normally do the, the program from, that sits right above the, uh, the subway, the tube tracks. So if you hear any rumbling, my digestion is fine. It's not me. Now, the personal stuff taken care of, ladies and gentlemen, to um, what we're awash in this weekend, especially if you're in the United States which I'm not, but I'm tuned in. I'm, I'm you know, tuned in, babe. Um, and it it's a, a lesson, among other things, it's a lesson again in just how exceptional the United States is. You know all about American exceptionalism. Well, here is a great, li, almost living example of it. Because as we know from uh, much journalism and opinionating, the KGB, the Russian intelligence agency, that's, that's manned by thugs. RCIA, CIA, as we know from this weekend, it was run at least at one time by a saintly gentleman. And uh, what I've gleaned from all the commentary so far, all the hagiographi, hagiographizing of the uh, late President George H.W. Bush, yeah he did you know he uh he did the first really outright racist campaign ad thanks to his consultant Lee Atwater, who apologized for the ad on his deathbed um he the president and shaded the truth a little bit about war um he Pardoned the people the, the officials involved in the iran contra scandal officials who were to go were going to go on trial in which he the president, might have been called as a witness, yeah, he did that, but the underlying theme I'm getting from this weekend is at least he wasn't Trump. Hello, welcome to the show. <laughs> exceedingly walkable and unseasonably warm. Why would that be? London, England. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen.
2: We've got the ultra-modern knack Of getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what the frack
1: So we got enough water, right? We... we we're never running out of water. Water, water everywhere. Maybe not. The U.S. groundwater supply is smaller than originally thought. Hey, according to a new research study that includes a University of Arizona, Arizona hydrologist. Well, he should know. The study provides important insights into the depths of underground fresh and brackish water across the U.S. It's a... Uh, scientists from the University of Saskatchewan, the University of Arizona, and the University of California, published in Environmental Research Letters, we found that potable groundwater supplies in the U.S. do not go as deep as previously reported, meaning there is less groundwater for human and agricultural uses. Really? Humans don't do agriculture? It comes as a surprise to the humans. That's from uh, Jennifer McIntosh, the University of Arizona hydrologist. Drilling deeper wells, therefore, may not be a good long-term solution to compensate for increasing demands on groundwater, because they ain't there down there. We show there's a potential for contamination of deep, and f- deep fresh, and brackish water in areas where the oil and gas industry injects wastewaters into or in close proximity to these aquifers. It's the word we're going to be learning more and more about. Aquifers. These potable water supplies are already being used up from the bottom up by oil and gas activities. Fossil fuels are the fuels that keep on giving, aren't they? Groundwater is the primary source of domestic water supply for about half the people living in the United States. About 40% of all the water used in the U.S. for irrigated agriculture comes from groundwater. In Tucson, about half of the drinking water comes from groundwater. Many rural areas... In the U.S., we rely exclusively on groundwater for both agriculture and domestic uses. So to find out how deep potable groundwater extends the scientists and analyzed water chemistry data from the U.S. Geological Survey, they wanted credit. For 28 key sedimentary basins in the U.S., Looked at the correlation between water well depths and the depth, the transition between fresh and brackish water. Let's just learn to drink brackish. What do you say? Till now, the focus, as you know, if you've been paying attention, has been on the dropping of the water table, and now we're looking at how deep it goes. In the in parts of the western U.S., fresh groundwater extends down an average of th- thirty-four hundred feet. New research found the average depth of transition from fresh to brackish is about a thousand feet, which contradicts previous studies that said it extends. Sorry, down to sixty-five hundred. Whoa. That's, that's a lot of feet to, to lack water in. Fresh water, potable water. In parts in the eastern U.S., the team found the transition from fresh to brackish occurs at less than 1,000 feet deep. So drilling deeper wells won't get you much. In addition, the injection of water chemicals or sand that occurs with fracking, or the injection of fracking wastewater, may drive waters containing hydrocarbons – those are good, right? Butane, benzene, things, propane – into adjacent areas that contain potable water. Don't poke that. But while we're talking about all that water we don't have, study of microplastics by the European Chemicals Agency, well, what, what business do they have? Has said that the tiny materials used in cosmetics, detergents, and other household products, are your microplastics, are most likely to show up on land and in fresh ro- water rather than the ocean. So we know there's a lot of it in the ocean. Just imagine in November 22, presentation at a conference on microplastics in Spain, the senior scientific officer of the European Chemicals Agency said the group has identified other, uh, sorry, diverse sources of microplastics to the environment from intentional uses such as ear cosmetics. Many of these microplastics are washed down the drain at the point of use, he said. So because of how most countries in the European Union handle wastewater, the microplastics are not typically released directly into the water supply. Instead, the plastics end up in sewage sludge, you eating, that is cleaned, then frequently applied to farmlands as a fertilizer in many European countries. There are also direct uses of microplastics in fertilizers and plant protection products, he said, adding, there's a deep concern about the persistence of microplastics. Never too late, babe. Once released, he says, they can be extremely persistent in the environment, much like advertising, with some having half-lives estimated to be thousands of years. This could be a cause for concern as the long-term risks associated with the accumulation of microplastics in agricultural lands cannot currently be assessed. Hey, the grandchildren will figure it out. According to the uh, head of the uh, chemical agency, it's been asked by the European Commission, uh uh-oh, to investigate whether a Europe-wide restriction for intentionally added microplastics would be appropriate. And, on the subject of microplastics, while we're on the subject of microplastics, a team of researchers with the French National Center for Scientific Research, I said the French National Center of Scientific Research...
2: Ah, the French!
1: ...has found an example of environmental microplastic disrupting a predator-prey relationship. In their paper published in the journal Biology Letters, the group describes the study of the impact of microplastic consumption on the periwinkle. Yes, ask the periwinkle. Researchers note to date many studies have been done to better understand what happens to living creatures when they consume microplastics. Little work has been done to better understand what happens to the relationship between predators and prey when microplastics raise their pretty little head. Periwinkles, you ask. They're kind of shellfish. a uh, More precisely, a sea snail. So, uh, watch them move. Take your kids down to the uh, seashore and watch the sea snails move. They spend their time perched on algae-covered rocks, grazing on the algae. Well, I guess it's better than watching college football. They're considered a keystone creature because of the role they play as prey for other creatures, mainly crabs. Pardon me. Periwinkles are also consumed by humans. Did you know? Do you? In this new effort, the researchers wondered what might happen to periwinkles that consume algae that in itself absorb microplastics. research researchers found that when algae do that, they also absorb hazardous chemicals, and metals because microplastics absorb such materials from the water. When a periwinkle eats the algae, it's also eating the hazardous materials. So to find out if the heavy metals or other toxic substances eaten by the periwinkle's caused disruptive changes, the researchers gathered some specimens and brought them into the lab for testing. They also collected crabs to use as predators. When a periwinkle, that consumed the toxic mater- when periwinkle had consumed the toxic materials, it did not react in an expected way to the presence of a predator. oh Normally, upon spying a crab, a periwinkle will pull into the shell or try to avoid capture. Or just go, and hide in the wing! The periwinkles exposed to the toxic materials did not attempt to avoid capture, suggesting they had naive damage of some sort, likely due to the consumption of heavy metals. Probably Motley crew. The researchers note that in their experiments the levels of toxicity in the microplastics were equivalent to those on a typical beach, representing real-world conditions. The researchers suggest their findings hinted major changes happening in the marine environment due to the microplastics introduced by us introduced environment meet microplastics hope you two have a good time together now ladies and gentlemen this has got this has got to be Just such a shock to the system, such a uh, blow to credibility. The idea that when the United States Army Corps of Engineers makes a budget estimate for a proposed project, it's going to end up going up. It's going to end up going up. Let us try. To understand the United States Army Corps of Engineers fortifying an Illinois waterway to prevent invasive carp from using it as a path to Lake Michigan. That's a project the Corps has been studying for a while now. We'll save you from the carp. The project could cost nearly three times as much as they previously thought, according to the Corps, which released this week. A final strategy plan for updating the area near Joliet uh, Dam and Lock near Joliet, Illinois. That's where that prison is, isn't it? Uh, experts consider that a good location to block upstream movement of Asian carp that have already infested the Mississippi and Illinois rivers. We don't have them down in New Orleans, do we? They're good eating. Scientists warn if the voracious carp, oh, they're, they're good eaters. This is the deal. If they become established in the Great Lakes, they would outcompete native species and harm the region's $7 billion fishing industry. So the Corps' new plan... Similar to a draft from last year, but the estimated price tag in a year jumped from $275 million to $778 million. It was a rough year for all of us. Basically, during the past year, some additional engineering and design work changed the scope to bring it up to the current cost, said a spokesman for the Corps' office in Rock Island, Illinois. The biggest increases for building an engineered channel, the, uh, well, this is on the Des Plaines River, as they say back there. Under the plan, the channel will contain devices including an electric barrier, noisemakers, (laughs) having a party for the carp, and an air bubble curtain. Wow. I want one of those from from my grotto uh, to deter the fish you see from swimming upstream and remove those that don't turn back. The air bubble curtain will do it. The adjacent lock would be retooled to flush away unwanted species floating on the water. The draft had proposed using water jets to dislodge fish that might be stunned or caught in gaps between barges, but the new version says a better method would be generating a continuous dense curtain of air bubbles in the channel. Illinois, Michigan, other states that the border of the lakes agreed previously to discuss sharing the costs, but now they're going to have another thing. I think you are just going to have just one more thing. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Let us try. The motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers and now News of the Godly. Dayline, line Chicago three months into a state investigation of child sexual abuse by Roman Catholic clergy. The Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan said this week the number of violators, quote, is more extensive, not expensive, is extensive than the church previously has disclosed to the public. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? The church was hiding some information about the thing. Goodness gracious me. The initial review by the attorney general has found priests with credible allegations of sexual abuse against them, against minors, sorry, that were not made public by Illinois dioceses. The attorney general began investigating sexual abuse cases and whether there were hidden or secret files at each of the state's six dioceses, including Chicago. The early Thursday statement by Madigan was the first substantive release of information since her office began looking into church records after the explosive Pennsylvania grant it was an explosive grand jury report. Oh, report! Last summer, it's an explosive grand jury. You don't even want to get into the room. Found hundreds of previously undisclosed priest violators, including at least seven with connections to Illinois. Madigan has uh, had this ongoing investigation. It's led to Catholic led Catholic Church leaders in two, uh, three pro, uh, dioceses, including Peoria and Rockford, to each compile and publish a list of clergy members with credible allegations of abuse against minors. Peoria has disclosed three additional names, Rockford 11 additional names. There will be additional priest sex abusers named as the investigation continues, according to Madigan. And Fordham University officials apologized this month, that's uh, in New York, for allowing a priest who appeared on the Archdiocese of New Orleans list of suspected child abusing clergy to live at an on-campus nursing home before he died. The uh, New York City school, news, schools, the New York City schools newspaper, the Ram, reported that university spokesman Bob Howe called the decision to house the Reverend Cornelius Carr quote, a lapse that will not be repeated. It's the university's duty to ensure the safety of its students, says Howe. Says not. Says who? Says Howe. And while we don't believe any members of the community have been placed at risk by Father Carr's presence. It's inappropriate to house him in proximity to college campus or a nearby high school. It's a twofer. Howe didn't respond to a request for comment from the New Orleans advocate. The the university was unaware of Carr's status as a suspected child abuser until the RAM school paper asked about him. Carr served in posts across the United States during his career in the priesthood, including Jesuit High School in Mid-City New Orleans. He was accused of walking into a room as a Jesuit maintenance man, named—you well, don't need to know the name—sodomized an adolescent during Carr's time in New Orleans. Rather than stop the, the assault, the victim said, Carr began self-pleasuring. But um, the uh, the key to this, how? Not to, who, not to who. Howe said the university is usually aware of the backgrounds of priests living on campus only if in the past they lived or worked at Fordham, that very university. In other words, they don't check about any anywhere else in the country. We don't really care. News of the godly copyrighted feature of this broadcast. <laughs> From London, England, this is LaShoa now. News of the Atom. Clean, save, too cheap to meet Save, save, too
0: cheap to meet it. Save, save, too cheap to meet Save, save, to cheap to meet
1: You know, there's one way to solve the problem of storing. High-level nuclear waste. Of course, it's a problem that's bedeviled, as we've noted on this show, pretty much the entire world that is using um, safe, clean nuclear energy for electric power. And, of course, the stuff remains highly radioactive for, oh, you know, thousands of years. Like, about as long as humans have uh, had a culture on the continent of Australia, let's say. That would be 12,000, but this, this stuff less last longer than that sometimes. Anyway, there's a new, really fascinating development in uh, how, how, to, how to deal with that problem. And you'd be amazed how simple it is. Bloomberg reports, after spending billions of dollars over several decades to remove wa- radioactive waste leaking from that Hanford plant, nuclear bombs were made. The Department of Energy has come up with a new plan. The uh, Hanford Reservation, which produced plutonium for atomic weapons from World War II through the Cold War, is America's largest nuclear cleanup site. 56 million gallons of waste stored in leak-prone underground tanks in Washington State. And you've been hearing about Hanford from time to time in this program. The Energy Department now has proposed... To uh, take that—that uh, the that, uh, sludge left in nearly, well, in sixteen underground tanks to uh, reclassify it from high level to low level radioactive waste. Tom, low level radioactive. Yes, right. You want to say the other part. I low level was it? Yes, the reclassification. Reca- the reclassification. <laughs> Would would allow the department to fill the tanks with grout, cover them with an unspecified surface barrier, and leave them there. It must be magic grout. Environmental groups and others say the plan amounts to a semantic sleight of hand, you think, that will leave so much, as much as 70,000 gallons of remaining nuclear sludge, some of which could be radioactive for millions of years, in the ground, just right there in the ground. This is the most toxic stuff in the world, says a senior attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. You could have a lethal dose in a matter of hours or minutes. Not seconds, though. So that's a relief. A similar proposal to reclassify waste at the site was attempted by the George W. Bush administration, prompting a ferocious and protracted legal and legislative battle. The Trump administration revived the idea formally this past June, took public comments for five months. Final decision could come this spring. Now, the cleanup operations at Hanford already are projected to cost more than $100 billion. I got that on me. Come on. And the Energy Department has already spent more than $19 billion of it, according to the Government Accountability Office. Accountability? Government? I don't recognize that combination of words. The reclassification could save the department billions of dollars. Oh, well, then. There you go. But also opened the door to doing the same for all 177 tanks on the sprawling reservations. So if if it works, it works. High-level waste, zap your low-level. Man, government can be powerful. And South Carolina energy company Scana and its potential purchaser have reached a settlement with litigants in a class-action suit to offer a significant rate cut in the energy bill for people in South Carolina in exchange for those litigants dropping a lawsuit over $2 billion in uh, added fees on their energy bills. Attorneys for the class action members told the Charlotte Post and Courier they will accept the deal if it's approved. Scanna was a, a majority owner of this summer nuclear power plant expansion when the maker of the reactors, Westinghouse, went bankrupt early last year. You can be bankrupt if it's Westinghouse. The owners of the plant found themselves in a very bad position. Stakeholders opted not to continue the construction on the plant, unlike the one in Georgia where they're still building it and, and uh, ratepayers in Georgia are still paying for it. Meanwhile, Scana and South Carolina Electric and Gas found themselves on the hook after massive cost overruns. There are those cost overruns again. They're pesky. Customer energy bills subsidize the billions of dollars of construction that didn't happen or didn't go anywhere. Well, you can go look at the hole, I guess, see where your money many went. A Class action lawsuit representing these customers argued they shouldn't have to pay for an unfinished nuclear plant. What the hell kind of logic is that? The deal calls for Scana to partially pay the settlement with its Golden parachute fund, hundred fifteen million dollars, normally reserved to give high-level executives generous severance payments on their way out of the company. Did you know that certain? I'll get out of uh, falsetto range. There. Did you know that certain companies have a golden parachute fund? How about? Did you know that certain public utilities have a golden parachute fund? I want me one of those. The deal must be approved by a judge. It's also contingent on Scana being approved by another power company, Dominion of Virginia. Dominion would offer, as part of the settlement, would offer South Carolina customers a 15% customer rate cut that uh, could cut bills by more than $22 a month. Why don't they just redefine the uh, money due as less Definition is the answer to everything, I think. I'm 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 getting into it now. I really am. So, ladies and gentlemen, finally to not finally, we got a lot of time left. Uh, sit down and relax. Um the um the week in the world of <laughs> President Trump. Um a lot of uh, opinionators were saying it was a bad week for him. Um his Outrage at the continuation of the Mueller probe. And I think that's a great name for a medical device. I'm going to patent that. The Mueller probe, ow! Um, Just keeps rising, does his rage and resentment of it. He thinks it's a witch hunt, did you know? And uh, this week, among the developments in it, as uh, the president wung his way, winged, to uh, the G20 summit in um, Buenos Aires was the the submission to the court by uh, a special prosecutor, Mueller, of uh, a um, memo memorializing things that uh, Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, had now revealed to the prosecutor uh over the course of seven interviews going all the way back all the way back all the way back to last August and um among them were that while Trump and Cohen and uh others of the of, of the of the gang did I say gang um had insisted that any attempts to build a Trump tower in Moscow Project that uh, sorry that uh, Trump had apparently had on his mind for a while. Maybe got the idea when he got he got the glint I think when he held the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013. Maybe earlier. Who knows? Who knows when people get the glint? Um, but they'd all said that stopped by the time of the I think the Iowa primary in 2016. Now, according to Mueller's submission to the court. Um such efforts, such contacts in the uh attempt uh went on longer, uh up as far as I believe july fourteenth, uh right around the time of the Re- uh Republican convention, uh by about the time that the Washington Post first revealed the Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee. Nutty coincidence time. Um and the uh, submission continued that Michael Cohen uh, through his attorneys was saying that he's uh, eager to continue to co- cooperate with the special prosecutor as well as the uh, attorney general in New York and the federal prosecutors in New York, both of whom have their own investigations of the it, attorney general in New York is investigating the Trump Foundation and the uh, federal prosecutor in New York is, is investigating something else to do with Trump land and that, uh, in the submission, finally, Cohen was asking, when the sen- when sentencing time comes, that he please not be given prison time, because he's been so nice recently. Um, President <laughs> President Trump, um, in one of those increasingly common tarmac interviews he's been giving, um, called Cohen weak. That was in public. We don't really know what happened in private. Maybe we do. Hello, this is Attorney and Crisis Counselor Michael Cohn. This is my private voicemail, so you can still leave me a message, if you still care. Leave a message at the sound of the bullet I might not be taking for you anymore. Thanks.
2: Mike! Mikey! That's the weirdest thing since Rosie O'Donnell tried to get on Dancing with the Stars. Because a dancing and two. Since when is she a star of anything except her own weight loss plan? <laughs> so it's Donald. You figured that out by now. You always were a smart cookie, Mikey. That's why you lasted so long with the organization. Because God knows New York is full of dumb lawyers. We feasted on them, right? Okay, Mikey. Here's the deal. I know you've got some kind of cooperation thing with the witch hunter. I, you know, I don't blame you. Who wouldn't want to at least try to see what the going price is for integrity and loyalty, right? So now you know. By the way, I'm on my way back from Buenos Aires. They tell me that means good air. I can tell you this. If that's good air, the Vatican is in the Bronx. So look. Interesting. So you got another time thing now? Muller make you do that? This guy's unbelievable. But you know that. It's easier than a Brooklyn wedding. So look, Mikey. Corso made a deal with the witch hunt, thought about it, came to his senses. Same with Manafort. You've seen what it felt like to be all alone in a room full of feds, right? Not your people. Guys who think protection means a friggin' condom. Not the support of the concrete workers' union. Like we used to say, those guys know from shoes, right? Okay, look. Muller knows he lied. You got him right where you want him. Now he's wondering, is Mikey on the up and up, or is he telling the so-called truth? That's called leverage, my friend, and you've got more of it than I had on Mark Burnett when he came to me for season seven, which, as you remember, that... Damn, you know, you lose your training of thought while that's answering again. So here, look, here's my thing. Anytime you want, you can tell Mr. Muller, oh, I was lying about that. You know, I lie. I lie to protect Mr. Trump. I lie to please you. So, you know, these Russian guys were playing more hard to get than Marla Maples after her first Quaalude. So I lied to them about a penthouse. I mean, Mike, you know better than anybody. You give away the friggin' penthouse, there goes the profit margin on the whole deal. I mean, get serious. You know, you may be weak, but you weren't born on the 1st of December. And, you know, we're all weak. One time—I mean, I had a weakness for the East European models, right? If it wasn't for that, I could have given away 10 penthouses and still be way ahead of the game. Okay, Mike, look— You know this deal. You either come back in where it's warm and you got the protection of everybody from the U.S. Secret Service to the Concrete Workers' Union. Or you take your chances with the angriest bunch of Democrats since I rubber-checked the Hillary for Senate campaign in 2004, whatever it was. Totally up to you. Totally up to you, my friend. I'm in no hurry. I'm in no hurry. I got a 10-hour flight back from Argentina, so don't cry for me. Okay, man. Look, don't be a putz. Nobody likes a friggin' putz, okay? And, of course, you know, you don't need to ask. No promises. You and I, we're not the promise kind of people, right? Okay, talk to you later.
3: Love makes me treat you the way that I do. Gee, baby. Ain't I good to you? There's nothing too good in this world For a girl like you Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? Bought you a fur coat for Christmas And a diamond ring A Cadillac car, most everything is love makes me treat you the way that I do. Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? baby ain't i good to you bought you a fur coat for christmas and i bought you a diamond ring a cadillac car most everything love makes me treat you the way that i Baby, and I good to you? Gee, baby.
1: A lower-level Irish soccer team, I'm not being critical, that's just what it says, uh, apologized this week for faking the death of one of its players in an apparent attempt to avoid an upcoming game. I guess they are lower-level. I guess they are Irish. According to um, a public broadcasting service in Ireland, Ballybrack Football Club falsely told officials with the Leinster Senior Football League, senior as in, how old would senior football be? on on their last legs, um, that one of the players, one of uh, Ballybrack's players, had died in a traffic accident. The league subsequently postponed the game on Saturday and held a moment of silence for the player at all its other games over the weekend. Then the league discovered that the player, Fernando Lafuente, was in fact alive. Lafuente told radio television Ireland that his full-time employer, a software company, had simply relocated him from from Dublin to Galway. I was aware there was going to be some story on me, but I thought it was going to be me breaking a leg or something like that. That's how I find out I was dead. My colleagues started sending me all these news articles. Ballybrack apologized on Facebook for what it described as a quote, gross error of judgment, announced the person in question has been relieved of all footballing duties. I don't think it was a footballing duty. It was a public relations duty or a lying duty. I did not say that. Dateline Hoover, Alabama. City of Hoover officials met with and apologized to family members of the man fatally shot by police at the River Chase Galleria. This is Hoover, Alabama, Thanksgiving night. A mantic Bradford Jr. was fatally shot by a Hoover police officer who was responding to reports of gunfire, which had injured Bradford's 18-year-old friend and a 12-year-old girl. According to the city, councilman arranged a meeting with the Bradford family. Before a prayer vigil, the councilman and police chief apologized for inaccurately identifying Bradford as the shooter and offered condolences and prayers for the family's loss. The city postponed its its annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony out of, quote, respect of loss of life. You gotta love the respect. Re, re, re. Southwest Airlines has apologized after a member of its staff mocked a five-year-old girl's name. These are good this week. Tracy Radford and her daughter, Absidy, name is pronounced Absidy, is spelled A-B-C-D-E. Absidy. They were on, I wasn't mocking, were en route home to El Paso, Texas, from California's John Wayne Airport when the incident occurred. A gate agent allegedly began laughing, and took a photo of the child's boarding pass and posted it online. Airline spokesperson Chris Maintz offered the family, quote, a sincere apology. The employer's employee's social media post is not, quote, indicative of the care, respect, and civility the airline expects, unquote. What, airlines expect civility now? Not the ones I fly on. He continues, We take great pride in extending our Southwest hospitality to all of our customers. Redford said the airline hadn't done anything for two weeks after she filed a formal complaint. She said the gate agent started laughing, pointing at me and my daughter, and talking to other employees. And her daughter had asked why they were mocking her. Apparently, uh, according to another data website, there were, in, as of, uh, of twenty fourteen, there were three hundred twenty six children in the United States named Absidy. We are exceptional. A housing company in the London area apologized this week to Jewish residents for threatening to take down their mezuzahs if they did not remove the religious object themselves. Warwick Estates, located on the northern edge of the British capital, wrote in a statement it was sorry for its overzealous letter last week to residents of Cedarwood Court near the heavily Jewish London area of Stamford Hill. The letter said that hanging mezuzahs on front doors breached the terms of the residents' leases about hanging objects outside company-owned homes and they could be billed if they did not take them down, according to the Jewish Chronicle of London. Mentioned specifically was the mezuzah a rolled-up scroll of parchment that Jewish families hang on the frame of their front doors. So I hear, one resident said she had never seen anyone complain about the mezuzahs in 10 years of living in the area. We apologize for the letter sent to some of our customers asking them to remove religious items from their property, specifically the mezuzahs said the company spokesperson. The letter was overzealous in its nature and not in keeping with our business values. We wish to make it very clear that residents of the block in question are not required to remove their masseuses and will certainly not be removed by Warwick Estates or any representatives working on our behalf. New York magazine film critic David Edelstein has apologized for a joke that left some, including actress Martha Plimpton, demanding he be fired. Edelstein posted an image of the rape scene in Last Tango in Paris, recognizing director Bernardo Bertolucci's death this week. Said Edelstein in his post, quote, Even grief is better with butter, unquote. Contributes to uh, an interview program on N- is it NPR and uh, to CBS Sunday morning. On Tuesday afternoon, the uh, interview program. I can't remember the name of it, announced it was cutting ties with Edelstein, who was a regular contributor to the program hosted by an interviewer. His name I can't remember either. A statement released by New York Magazine on behalf of Edelstein he said the writer was sorry and has deleted his post as he did not know the backstory of the controversial scene. Maria Schneider told the Daily Mail <laughs> in 2007 the rape wasn't in the script and she found out about it right before cameras rolled. I was so angry, she said. I should have called my agent or had my lawyer come to the set because you can't force someone to do something that isn't in the script. But at the time, I didn't know that. I was crying real tears. Edelstein said he did not know how the scene had affected the young star. The rape was simulated. Dateline, Nicosia, Cyprus. Cyprus president has publicly apologized for the early release of a man convicted of sexually exploiting a minor, admitting the decision to grant him a pardon was, quote, well thought out. The president, I'm not going to pronounce his name, because I had mispronounced his name. He went off script in an event on combating sexual abuse against minors to offer the apology for making a, quote, mistake. They Dorchester Mass, the Dorchester Historical Society, has apologized for an invitation that backfired. The invitation was for their holiday open house. It was entitled, We're Dreaming of a White Dorchester. They say they were just making a play on the words of the song White Christmas. It did not imply mean to imply that others would be left out. Quote, we're truly very sorry about our graphic use for this event. This was an unfortunate oversight on our part, and the event photograph has been removed from our social media. We did not think it through properly. Unquote. Picture of Hell's Angels ringing bells to raise money for the Salvation Army's Red Kettle Drive in uh, outside of the Valparaiso, Indiana, Walmart went viral on social media after an Aryan patch was spotted on the leather jacket of one of the bell ringers, Valparaiso, Indiana, home at one point at least of Valpo velvet ice cream. The post since taken down struck a nerve with the community and all the parties involved. The Salvation Army has apologized and banned the Hells Angels from volunteering again. (laughs) That'll, That'll teach the Hells Angels. Dateline, Seoul, South Korea. South Korea's top public prosecutor apologized this week over what he described as a botched Investigation into the enslavement and mistreatment of thousands of people at a vagrants facility in the 1970s and 80s, nearly three decades after its owner was acquitted of serious charges. This was the first formal expression by the South Korean government of remorse over one of the worst human rights atrocities in modern South Korea. They had pressure for Parliament to pass legislation to start a deeper inquiry into the so-called Brothers Home, whose owner was exonerated from serious charges amid an obvious cover-up orchestrated at the highest levels of government Is all. I accept with a heavy heart the results of our committee that the prosecution then caved into pressure from above. Well, pressure from below would, wouldn't really... And Che uh, closed its investigation prematurely. Even on the charges that were included in the indictment, the defendants weren't properly punished during the trials. That's from uh, the uh, top public prosecutor. Moon Moo Il, And... Terry Rossio is part of a list of people in Hollywood that have issued an apology for using the N-word. Don't ask me. What word? I'm over here. I was over there for a minute. Don't ask me what word. Come on. In a series of tweets, Rocio apologized for equating the term anti-vax with the N-word, and he actually wrote out the word in his tweet. He said the use of the word was a mistake, just like the many that have wrongly used the slur before him, he said. In a recent Twitter post arguing against stereotyping and hate speech, I uh, referenced the, N-word, uh, the actual word as an example of what not to do. He wrote, that was a mistake. I am sorry. I now understand that the word has no place in any conversation ever. You can't make a point against hate speech and reference actual words of hate speech. That was insensitive and ignorant. I'm immediately deleting the post to remove that toxic word from the Internet, which should never appear in any context. Well, the Internet is clean now. Quote, as the mistake was mine alone, this apology is also mine alone. A deeply felt apology to all. I continue to stand against hate speech. He is um, the author, screenwriter, Pirates of the Caribbean. In case you didn't know. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that um, harmonica player you're hearing in the background is the incredible Howard Levy. just one of our many fine musical and comedic guests at Christmas Without Tears, our annual charity holiday entertainment evening in Chicago, the um, 8th and 9th of this month at Space in Evanston. A whole different cast of incredibly talented variety musical entertainers. We'll be at Christmas Without Tears at Le Petit Theatre in New Orleans on the 17th and 18th. Also, a charity thing done by Ms. Judith Owen. I'll be there too. If you'd like to come enjoy and help, please do. That's going to end this 35th anniversary celebration edition of the show. Whoopee. It returns next week on the radio at the same time and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it'd be just like, no, don't say 35 years more. If you did join me then. What? If you to join me Would you do that? Whatever I said. Alrighty, Thank you very much. A uh-huh. typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and not an exile in Hawaii, desk And uh, thanks to Adrian Bonham here at Global Radio in London. It's Nutty Obsession for help with today's program. The email address for this program, playlist of the music here here on, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. This show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO, New Orleans' flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from London.